Welcome and thanks for listening to another show of The Health Zone. I'm Michal Mahuna. Check out and like our Facebook page on www.facebook.com forward slash The Health Zone Show or follow us on Twitter on the letter D Health Zone or log on to our website on www.thehealthzoneshow.com. If you subscribe to our mailing list on there, you will get the Hellstone Show delivered to your inbox every week, and also you'll get a copy of our free ebook called How to Transform Your Health in 2016. Also, if you have any feedback on the show or if you would like to get in touch with us, our email is tunein at thehellstoneshow.com. Today I'm talking with founder of Children in Crossfire, Richard Moore. Hello, Richard. Hello, Michal. How are you doing? Very good. How are you doing? Very good. No complaints today. That's great to hear. So, tell me, Richard, a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, I'm from Derry in Northern Ireland. I've lived there all my life. I'm 54 years of age now, so I was born in 1961 in Derry. Um, I remember Derry pre-conflict times in the early 60s as a young boy and running around the Craigan Estate in Derry, which was a, a large sort of... Catholic nationalist area in the uh, in the city, and um, you know, and I can remember uh, you know my childhood with great fondness, you know the sort of things that every youngster would have done in those days, playing football or whatever. And um, I, you know, then I obviously remember the conflict in Northern Ireland, uh, and of course we're all enjoying now the 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 peace process. I suppose, uh, you know. I, uh, for me, um, in the 1972, uh, my life changed quite significantly in the sense that, um, you know, well, you know, the the conflict kicked off around 1968, 1969 in the streets of Derry, and what seemed like overnight for me as a young boy, the Craigan estate became a war zone. You know, you had uh, these bizarre things happening, like the people in the area digging up the pavements outside on the street and breaking them up and using them as missiles to throw at the British Army or the police or to build barricades at the end of each street. There was hijacked vehicles, burnt out cars, burnt out buses, all thrown across the road and they were all used to build barricades. You know, um, uh, you know, I remember, you know, you used to watch the, the young men of the area. You know, they seemed like men to me, but they're probably young, young boys, 17 or 18, running around in these hijacked dumper trucks, collecting bottles uh, to take down to the where the riots were happening so they could make petrol bombs or whatever. You know, and it was just, it, that to me just seemed like overnight, you know, shootings, bombings, riots were a daily occurrence. And um, I can, uh, I suppose, uh, you know, in in January 1972, something very significant happened in Derry, and that was Bloody Sunday. And, you know, where 13 people were shot dead by British paratroopers on the streets of Derry. Uh, At least five or six of those people, you know, lived within maybe 30 seconds or 40 seconds walk from my house. So as you can imagine, the the area was very volatile, you know. Um, I can remember my brother taking me down 
to the bog side, which was just you know again about maybe ten minutes minutes walk from where I lived. But I, I remember him driving me down to the bog side the, the day after Bloody Sunday and seeing all the you know the pools of blood congealed blood where people had been shot dead or shot and injured that the day before you know uh, and one of the starkest images for me strangely enough was walking into St Mary's Chapel in the Craigan and seeing 13 coffins on the altar you know and I, you know I went to mass every Sunday in the Craigan and you know you maybe would have seen one coffin every so often where somebody had died and they kept the coffin just at the side of the altar there but they walk on and see 13 coffins across the altar was like something that you saw in a foreign country you know like when a when a terrible disaster happened and funny that's the one thing that struck me about the whole thing in many ways um, as well as that my uncle Jared McKinney, my mother's brother, was shot dead on Bloody Sunday, so obviously that had a particularly significant impact. But the reason why I'm talking about Bloody Sunday is because I think, well, arguably the weeks and months that follow Bloody Sunday were among the most violent period in the history of the Northern Ireland conflict. I think more people died in the year after Bloody Sunday or the year following Bloody Sunday than in any other year throughout the conflict. And the Craigan and Derry was a very sort of volatile place. The Craigan estate became known as a no-go area, as did the Bogside. And like, I don't know if you're familiar with Derry, Hall, but you know, Derry is a very hilly city. You have the river going through the centre of the city, so you have the West Bank where back in those days all mainly nationalists lived and then you have the East Bank where mainly the Unionist community lived or the Protestant community lived. So we're not only divided religious ways and political ways but also divided uh, geographically as well. But it was a sloping city and everything sloped down towards the river, a lot of hills and all that. And the Craigan Estate was probably one of the highest points in the city. And that sloped down into the Bogside, and then the Bogside, right beside the Bogside, you had the city centre. And, um, you know, so the Craigan and the Bogside became known as no-go areas, and that's what the barricades were for. The barricades were there to stop the British Army or the police from infiltrating the areas easily. And it came, the areas became known as a no-go area. That's the term that was used to describe it by the military and everything else. So by and large, the people of the Craigan policed themselves. It wouldn't have been unusual to see an IRA foot patrol walking down the streets, masked men carrying rifles. You would have found a, an IRA checkpoint where, you know, cars were being stopped by IRA men. You know, I can remember myself walking down and standing beside IRA men and they would let you hold their rifle and things like that. It just you know, obviously for a minute or 30 seconds or whatever. So, um, I went to a school called Rosemount Primary School. And Rosemount Primary School and St. Joseph's Secondary School were both on the edge of the Craigan Estate. So I was 10 years of age when Bloody Sunday happened. But 
um, because of where the two schools were on the edge of the Craigan estate um, sorry the two schools were beside a police barracks and because of where the police barracks was located on the edge of, uh, of a, a no-go area then it was a target for the IRA and a target for rioters so the British Army were brought in to protect the barracks the police barracks so you had these what I would describe as semi-permanent military installations um, we called them army lookout posts sangers or sandbag posts and they were all the same thing and it was basically a military hut um, you know there were the front of them you had barbed wire and then behind that you had corrugated sheets of corrugated iron going from the ground right up and over to make a roof and then behind the corrugated iron the army built walls made out of like cloth potato bags filled with sand and they were all piled on top of each other to build walls and then and behind that the army looked out through a kind of a porthole and the purpose of these lookout posts were to protect the army from bombs and bullets basically one of these army lookout posts faced up in through uh, in between my school Rosemount Primary School and uh, St Joseph's Secondary School so about three four months after Bloody Sunday the 4th of May 1972 I got out of school as normal I ran along the you know me and my friends had a race along the football pitch of St Joseph's School which was just positioned you know between the two schools so we're having a race and in doing that we had to pass this army lookout post on our right hand side and when I was about 10 feet away from it a British soldier fired a rubber bullet the rubber bullet hit me on the bridge of the nose I lost my right eye and was left completely blind on my left eye you know what I remember about that day was obviously racing with my friends and then the next thing I remember I woke up and I was lying in the school canteen table um, and what happened was my music teacher Mr Giles Doherty heard the bang he ran over found me lying on the ground and lifted me and carried me and laid me out on the school canteen table and then the next thing I remember is I woke up in the ambulance and at that stage my daddy and my sister were beside me I only lived about two minutes walk from the school so somebody obviously ran up to our house and told me daddy had been shot and him and my sister came running down the hill and they jumped into the ambulance beside me so that was me really I spent about two weeks in hospital and um, all during that time I didn't know I was blind I thought I couldn't see because of the bandages on my eyes so I thought it was the bandages that were preventing me from seeing so I was kind of a, a football fanatic Michal, and you know I loved playing football um, and I remember when they moved me out into the general ward after about a week you know when I come out of intensive care I remember joking with a wee boy in the bed opposite me saying to him you know I can't wait to get these bandages off my eyes to I teach you how to play football you know a young lads joke and I think, you know, on reflection now, that must have been very difficult for my family. You know, I come from a big family. There's 12 children in our house. 
nine boys and three girls. And because of the seriousness of the incident, they kind of kept a constant vigil around my bed. And, uh, you know, I think when they heard me talking, as if all I had to do was remove the bandages and everything would be back to normal, must have been very difficult for them because they knew the real story. You know, and they must have wondered, you know, how are we going to tell Richard he'll never play football again? How are we going to tell Richard he'll never be able to see again? What was it like growing up then since that time when the accident happened? Well, I didn't know that I was blind until about a month after I was shot. At that stage, I was out of hospital. And my brother Noel took me for a walk up and down our back garden. And it wasn't unusual because they'd done that every kind of day to help build up my strength. But this particular day, he said to me, Richard, do you know what has happened to you? And I said, yes, I knew I was shot. And he said, do you know what damage was done? And I said, no. And that's when he told me that I lost my right eye, you know, and I never really see you in my left eye. And to be honest, Michal, I just accepted it there and then. Literally took it me straight that day. Until I went to bed that night. And when I was in bed on my own, I cried for the one and only time that I remember about blindness. And I cried because I realised for the first time that I was never going to see my mommy and daddy again. And that might seem strange, but, you know, the 10-year-old boy, you know, you don't think about the bigger things in life. You don't think about getting a job. You don't think about your education. You don't think about, you know, how you're even going to cope with blindness or anything. All as I felt was this enormous sense of loss that I was never going to see my parents' faces again. And I cried myself to sleep that night. Um, but the next day, I suppose I had to put the pieces of my life back together. And, you know, I would always say that day was the first day of the rest of my life as a blind person. I was shot in May, so I didn't really go back to school until September. And um, I went back and went to the primary school that I was shot in. And then went on under the secondary school done me all my exams there and went to university in Coleraine I got my degree in 1983 I got married in 1984 to Rita and we have two children Neve and Denya. Neve is now 26 she'll be 27 in March and Enya was just 24 there on Friday past so um, I've had a very active life, you know. Um, I learned how to play the guitar and played in bands and all that sort of stuff, you know. And me and Rita, when we were 18 years of age, set up the Long Tower Folk Group. The Long Tower Chapel in Derry is a, it's also known as St. Columbus, and it's, it's um, the Church of St. Columbus' first monastic settlement in, in, in uh, Derry. So it's a you know it's got a lot of history and a lot of character to it and for the last 35 years now me and Rita have been running the folk group on there that sing a mass on a Saturday night and 
and as I say, I played in bands and all that. Never played quite as far down as Cork. Used to play in Carlo <laughs> and places like that. So um, uh, in Galway maybe, but never, never as far as Cork. So I mean, uh, you know, I was back in the sort of early nineties and stuff, and it kept me interested up in football. I, I became a director of Derry City Football Club. Uh, and uh, so for four or five years I was a director of the club in fact the last time Derry City was Champions of Ireland I was uh, a director so I was back in 97 I think and it was a fantastic time Felix Healy was the manager and we had a great old time in fact you know many's an enjoyable trip we had down here to Turner's Cross playing Cork City and stuff like that there you know so um, and I was compensated by the British government for being shot and with half the money I bought a house and with the other half I bought a pub and two years later I bought a second pub and uh, so by the time I was 20 years of age I owned two pubs in the centre of Derry so when I came out of university I had a wee office above one of the pubs the street in there and began to run my own business for about 14 years you know so but I suppose all during my self-employed life um and the the older I got, kind of my early twenties and all that, I began to become very aware of who I was and you know what happened and you know think about it in a way that in an adult way, you know, and kind of realise how lucky I was, and began to ask myself some questions and I sort of began to realise, you know, there are children in other parts of the world that might have had their eyesight but didn't have what I had. And, you know, when I look back, even then, when I look back on my life at that age, in the 20s or whatever, I had a very active, full, happy and contented life. Blindness wasn't a problem for me. I accepted blindness and, and you know, never really bothered me or anything. No, I'm not saying it didn't have its its moments but uh, and doesn't have its physical drawbacks you know, occupational hazards, let's say, but generally, 99.999% uh, uh, of the time, I never thought about blindness. I was very, I, I was and am very happy. Um, and I began to wonder why that was. And I suppose it comes down to four things for me. Four, I always say four broad things. You get, you get say, ten things or eight things, but I always think four broad things, really. And one of them is the fact that I come from a good family. And you know, despite the, you know, you know the challenges in my family or that I was facing, my family were fantastic. And then I come from a a good community, uh, and again, you know, the, you know the the support back in those days, Mehall, in the seventies, you had no such thing as trauma counsellors or all that sort of and uh, sort of. I suppose structural support that might exist there it wasn't there so the people that helped me and helped my family were the local community you know and then the third thing you know despite the poverty and the challenges that existed in Derry and Northern Ireland and all that sort of stuff in those days despite all of that I still had choices and opportunities available to me even as a blind person and as I say I suppose in my young adult years I began to realise, you know, there are things worse than blindness in life. You know? And I remember thinking one time, you know, I'd rather live in Northern Ireland than deal with blindness than have to live in a developing country in Africa, for example. 
and deal with the challenges that young children have to face there in terms of the injustice of poverty. So eventually around 1996 I sold out the business and I set up an organisation called Children in Crossfire. So Children in Crossfire are celebrating their 20th anniversary this year. And, you know, um, over those 20 years, you know, the organisation has supported projects in Africa, Asia and South America. You know, in partnership with a variety of organisations. You know, we've worked in countries like Malawi, Mozambique, Kenya, Colombia, Brazil, Bangladesh, Ghana, Guinea and so on. Today, we work in Tanzania and Ethiopia. And we work with some of the most vulnerable children on the planet. You know, children that wake up every day and don't know where their next meal's coming from. Children that don't have access to a drink of clean water. Children that don't have access to medicines that could help save their lives. Living in mud huts with no electricity, no running water, no toilets. You know, um, and if they're lucky enough to get a meal, then it might be one meal a day. And I have the humble experience of going out there to the country and visit the projects on a regular basis, and it's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. You know, uh, when you hold the hands of children who just don't have the opportunities that my children have. And, you know, it does make you wonder sometimes about the cruelty in the world, you know, and the, the injustices in the world. And all, the, all these children are asking for is the same basic human rights that you and me have come to expect for our children. You know, they just need to be protected and, and loved and supported. You know, many of these children die before they're five years of age. In some places, one in every five die before they're five years of age. And, you know, I remember, for example, going to Ethiopia and and um, I remember we, we was, uh, when I went there I was met by the Franciscan mission of Our Lady the nuns there at the airport and he took me to a graveyard but not to see the dead to see the living or you might say people who were barely alive and you had 260 people living and sleeping on top of graves young families children you know, at least 50% of them would have been children. And the young girls there were child prostitutes selling their bodies on the streets of Addis Ababa. Young girls, seven or eight years of age. You know, mentally, physically, sexually abused every single day of their lives. You know, they didn't have food. They were clearly malnourished. You know, um... And I remember there was one young girl called Tanaya, and I always talk about Tanaya, because Tanaya's parents both died, and she was left in charge of her four siblings. She was only 13 or 14 herself, and there were four younger, ch younger children. There's no network out there, there's no safety net, there's no welfare system. She was left to look after these four children living in a graveyard under a house made out of bits of plastic or bits of bamboo lying and sleeping on top of graves. You know, um, and you know, 
I often compare Tania's life to my children's life, and my daughter's, and thank God, you know, she just deserves the same chances and the same breaks as my children. You know, and, you know, Children in Crossfire, that's one example of the project. You know, Children in Crossfire got involved, and we put a feeding program in place initially in 2008, and then, you know, I was paid for medical support in the graveyard so they could deal with whatever illnesses that were there. And then, um, you know, there was a wee a teacher went in then we paid for a teacher to go in and we set up a school underneath the tree so the kids could start attending school. But the day that I went to visit them initially, uh, there was a torrential rainstorm, and all two hundred and sixty people were just sitting in the mud, wouldn't a media arrive, because they thought that I represented hope, a way out. And I just remember the spokesperson that day said to me. If somebody doesn't do something soon, there'll be nobody here to help, because we'll all die. Now there has to be something wrong with a world that allows that to happen. You know, there has to be something wrong in a world where there's loads of resources. You know where you, we seem to have no difficulty in finding the resources to, say, go into wars and all that sort of stuff. But we just can't seem to find the resources to save children's lives. And, you know, I, I just think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an awful act of injustice, really. So what I see children in Crossfire doing is trying to restore the rights of those people. They help them get their dignity back. They help them build a future for themselves. And I think every child in the world, in every village in the world, there's a Richard Moore, there's a Mehal, there's a Mary, there's a Joe, who wants to be a teacher, who wants to be a doctor. Who wants to be a bricklayer? Who wants to be a mammy or a daddy? And just given the right chance and the right support, they can do all those things. You know, I remember one time been in Bangladesh, a project we supported in Bangladesh. Children were living in slum areas. And I was staying in this sort of room near the slum area. And it was about nine o'clock at night and the electricity had gone off. There was a power cut. And just outside my room, where people lived in these sort of wooden huts in the middle of sewage and stuff. And I remember a child started to sing. And in its own language, it sang, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And I remember thinking, the tune's the same. The words are the same, but life is so different. And that child down there singing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star deserves the same opportunity in life as our children in Ireland who sing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. A child is a child, no matter where it is in the world, and deserves the 
you know, the same level of care and support and love that every child, an opportunity. I mean, come back to the, the graveyard scenario, then eventually we were able to fundraise and with the support we received here in Ireland, we were able to buy 60 small condos, which is like, if you can imagine a four or five story building with six rooms in each corridor, each room became a home. And at the end of the corridor, there was a communal kitchen. Outside the building, there were toilets, proper toilets. The building had electricity and had running water. And the families themselves inside, they separated each room, uh, put a curtain across so that they could separate the bedroom from the living area. And I went back in 2011 and at that stage they were all in the, the condos and the children were out waiting unless they arrived this time as always and it doesn't matter if it's me or you you get a you get a celebrity welcome and the children were out dancing and singing in their school uniforms properly fed and they were happy and like, make no mistake about it they weren't getting burger and chips every day or they weren't getting, you know, cornflakes or rice krispies or or all that. They were just getting a few stable meals a day. And it was just a life changing experience. And when I when I left that day I sort of thought about the difference between when I left the graveyard and it was a tropical rainstorm and I couldn't get out of my head that they were all lying in the rain that night and there was a thunderstorm and here now they were I was leaving and they were just so, so life was so different and that was made possible by the support of people here you know so it is possible they make a significant difference but I remember talking to Tanaya the girl at that time and at this stage you know she was obviously living in the in the 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 condo and now she was a classroom assistant and getting paid money albeit not what a classroom assistant would get in Ireland you know probably 20, 20 or 10 pounds a month 10 or 20 pounds a month maybe but I remember saying there what's your biggest fear and she said her fear is the children in Crossfire would stop providing food you know and I often think well you know how many of young people here have that worry you know uh, but you know it's a sad story in many ways and it is a heartbreaking story and it is an example of the challenges that exist in developing countries but at the same time there's a positive element to it in the sense that there's also an example there of what can be done given the right resources I know you're a personal friend of His Holiness the Dalai Lama as well, Richard. Tell me, uh, what's your relationship like with him? I am sort of very lucky to have had unique access to His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and uh, you know, I I um, treasure all of that when it happens. Um, but I suppose it all came about. You know, uh, there's kind of four things in my life that I, as I mentioned earlier, that helped me cope and. You know, uh, you know that basically made it possible for me to be the person I am today. And um, 
already mentioned family, community and opportunity. But the fourth thing is a lack of hatred and a lack of anger in my life. And, you know, if you think of anger and you think of hatred, it's a self-destruct emotion. It destroys you from the inside out. You know, somebody once says to me, anger is like drinking a cup of poison and expecting the other person to die. And that is true. So, I hadn't got that anger. And I'm glad to say I hadn't got that anger. To the point where I was curious about the British soldiers that shot me. Now, you know, I'm not going to pretend to you there are times in my life, you know, when I must my eyesight. And, you know, being shot and blinded the way I was has had an impact on everybody. Like my mother broke her heart. No, I can remember my mammy just after I got out of the hospital coming up and kneeling beside my bed at night. And you know, my mammy and daddy were two very devout Catholics. Went to Mass every day. They were wonderful examples of parents. They really were. They didn't support violence. But you know, despite their best efforts of avoiding the troubles, the troubles found us. My mammy's brother shot dead on Bloody Sunday, my uncle Jared. And then four months later, I was blinded at the bottom of the school playground. And they must have wondered, what do they have to do to keep their family safe? And you know, I remember my mammy coming up, as I say, when I got out of hospital. And she used to go up and think I, I was lying in my bed and she thought I was sleeping, you know. And she'd need beside my bed. And just start to say her prayers. And then she'd break down and start to cry. And the crying would get out of hand. You know, and she would start pleading with God, look at him, God, he's only a ten-year-old boy. Please give him back his eyesight. Please give him back his eyesight. And, you know, then I'd pretend to wake up and she'd kind of pull herself together. My daddy, he stood in the middle of our street the day he came back from the hospital. Stood in the middle of the street with a man out of the street and cried. Because he just told them that day that I was going to be blind for the rest of my life. And for different members of my family, it had an enormous impact. For me, I'm a very happy and content blind person. I am. I genuinely am. And I'm not just saying that. You know, there are some positive things about blindness as well. But, you know, there are times in my life when I've missed my eyesight. For example... When my two daughters were born, I would have given anything to see them. I was there in the ward when they come into the world for the first time. And everybody will tell you, any parent will tell you how magical that is. I couldn't see them. When they smiled for the first time, when they opened their eyes for the first time. And those moments I must me eyesight. I remember when they made their first communions and their confirmations and got up the aisle of the Craigan Chapel. And everybody telling me how beautiful they looked. And I couldn't see them. And those moments, I must me, I said. And those moments, I thought about the British soldier that shot me. But despite all of it, I never had a moment's anger, a moment's hatred. To the point where, as I said earlier, I was curious to know who he was. I didn't know his name until 2003. 
or two thousand. Sorry, I didn't. I didn't know his name until two thousand and five. Thirty-three years after I was shot, and his name's Charles. And in January two thousand and six, I flew to Scotland on my own and met Charles for the first time. And I have to say, it was one of the most amazing experiences in my life. And I suppose I learned two things about forgiveness that day. The first thing is forgiveness is a gift that you give to yourself. And what I mean by that is, you know, if Charles wants my forgiveness, he has it. But that's not what's important. What's important for me and my heart is I forgive him for my happiness, for my peace of mind. The second thing is forgiveness doesn't change the past but it does change the future. And again, the fact that I forgive Charles won't give me back my eyesight, will it? It won't take away all the hurts that were caused to me and my family all those years ago. But what it did do and has done is change my future. You know? And I don't believe that I would be the person I am today if I had been wrecked with anger, hatred and bitterness. So, I met Charles then, and me and Charles are good friends ever since. But the reason why I'm telling you that in the context of the Dalai Lama, you asked me about the Dalai Lama. I first met His Holiness in Derry in 2001, 2001. I didn't know him from Adam. I just knew him the way everybody else knows him. And I was in the audience. He met a small group of victims, about 30 victims, and Derry. And I had no plans to say anything and all of that. But I remember him talking about forgiveness. And I never saw my story in the context of forgiveness. I never thought that I was forgiven or anything like that. But when I heard him talk about forgiveness, I remember thinking to myself, he's actually describing how I feel. So eventually I plucked up the courage and I put my hand up and I said, look, Your Holiness, I just have a comment to make. I just want you to know that how you have described forgiveness is exactly how I feel. And then he, you know, we had a bit of a joke then. He said to me, uh, you have great insight. And I said, well, you wouldn't mind telling my wife that. And so we had a buddy, a buddy a laugh about that. And then... I ended up, for some reason, there was a lunch prepared, and I ended up sitting beside him for lunch. And then he asked me to tell, tell him more of my story, and he invited me out to India. And that was I didn't need to take him up on his offer until ten years later. But so I remember anyway writing to him then, oh, five or six years after I first met him, at that day, I remember writing to him and. Uh, saying to him, look, I have met the British soldier. No, yeah, I told him I met the British soldier that shot me. And it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And I also then, in that letter, invited the Dalai Lama to Derry to children, speak at Children Crossfire's 10th anniversary. And I accepted the invite. And uh, so I've, I've met His Holiness 
now on quite a few occasions since that. And you know, to me, the Dalai Lama is everything that I believe in in terms of compassion, forgiveness, love. You know, I think he's one of the, he's unique in the planet today. I can't think of any other person. I can't think of one other person that basically embodies in one person what he has. You know, when you look at his life, living in exile in Dharamshala, a whole nation of people have lost their home, homeland, and are living in exile. And he has managed to maintain a peaceful message throughout all his life in exile. And he's constantly held out the hand of friendship. You know, I just think he's a wonderful example of how we all should be or try to be. You know, so for me they know him and they've spent time with him and they have him as a patron of children in crossfire as a real honour and a real privilege for me um, and you know sometimes I worry because he's not getting any younger and you know where are the examples in the world you know um you know, who can we look up to in many ways? And he is definitely unique in my book. You talked about forgiveness. What do you think is the purpose of forgiveness? Well, for me, we all have meet challenges in our life. I mean, I lost my eyesight, which is, I suppose, a tad dramatic. But, you know, <laughs> you know, but every day you have challenges in your life. You know, you could go out and somebody has scraped the bonnet of your car. There could be a child that whacked a football off your brand new BMW. There could be a neighbour that is basically throwing his cut grass into your garden. So on and so on and so on. There's small things and there's big things. There's family members and all that. But ultimately, everybody wants to be happy, I think. Everybody needs to be happy for your own mental health, physical health and everything else. To harbour anger and hatred is, to me is like a blockage in your system, in your emotional system. Now I'm no expert in all that chakras and all this sort of stuff. I'm, I don't energy sort of pathways and all that. I'm not. But what I know is what I experienced in life. And, you know, where you have anger and hatred, it is a blockage. You know, it is a, a way of preventing you from being happy. And if you can for find a pathway through the challenges that you face in life, because not all challenges are about the kid hitting their ball off your BMW either. There's a lot of people dealing with very serious, difficult challenges in life. So if you can find a way that you can deal with those hurts and those angers then you will be a happier person. 
And I think forgiveness. It's probably not the only way to do it, but it's certainly the only way that I know to do it. And forgiveness is a great pathway that you can release yourself. You know, I always say, say I'd have been really angry with Charles the soldier or the British army. Everybody would have understood it. I could have been banging my fist and banging the table and saying, you know, I hit them. And everybody would have understood that. They would have said, you know, you do right to hit them. It's totally understandable. They blinded you. They took away your eyesight. It's affected your life for the rest of your life. But I don't think I would have been happy. Instead, I had that gift of forgiveness. that was given to me, by the way, by my parents. You know, their example. I never heard my mommy or daddy say an angry word. Not an angry word. You know, witnessed a lot of tears. A lot of emotion. They were broken hearted. They were broken hearted. I mean, their 10 year old boy out kicking football one day, doing fancy flips with a ball out in the backyard. I, I, I can remember one of my brothers was out in our kitchen with my mommy just after I was shot. We lived in a small house in the Craigan. So when you were sitting in one room, you could hear the conversations in the other room. And my mommy always spent her time in the kitchen, you know. And I remember one of my brothers was out in the out in the kitchen. One of the brothers just older than me. He was about sixteen or seventeen at the time. And I remember him having a real go with me, mammy. You know, or sorry, maybe venting his anger with me, mammy. Really, that's you know, when he was saying things like, you know, they murdered my uncle Jared. They blinded Richard. It's time to get our own back. You know, and he was obviously advocating some t- kind of violent retaliation. And I remember my mommy saying to him, If you want to help Richard, go you in there and you help Richard. But you're not helping Richard by hurting somebody else. And you know what? I think in that moment, my mommy drew a line in the sand and said enough is enough there's nothing to be achieved for the idea of an eye for an eye and you know I think in that day she lifted the football and decided we're going to play a different game we're going to take it on a different direction And, you know, and I think your original question is, why do we need forgiveness? I think we need forgiveness, firstly, for our own happiness. Because it provides an avenue through which you can begin to heal yourself. And also a way in which you can find happiness and contentment. Now, does it justify it? I often get asked that question. The fact that I forgive Charles, does it justify him blinding me? No, it doesn't. And I think people often confuse forgiveness with justification. What Charles did 
was wrong. It was dreadfully wrong. It was unjustified and unjustifiable. Firing a rubber bullet at a group of children in a school playground in any circumstances, in any language, in any nation in the world cannot be justified in any way. Charles acted wrong and acted outside the law. But I'm not talking about the law. I'm talking about me and how I feel and how do I deal with it. Because sometimes people get justice but they're no happier at the end of it. And if Charles had been locked up in jail and the key thrown away if I had been feeling angry and full of hatred I don't think I would have felt any better if that happened. Now that's where we're kind of under the personal side of my story. Because what's right for me may not, may not be right for everybody else. And, you know, Michal, I understand that. You know, there are people out there listening to this program who could be hurting from a whole host of things. And find it hard to forgive. And find it hard to buy into the sense of logic that I'm kind of presenting now. That is totally understandable. It is totally understandable. But I offer my story out in the hope that somebody out there who is hurting, who is down a cul-de-sac, can find a way to release themselves. Because forgiveness is not about freeing up the other person. Forgiveness is not about justifying the hurt that somebody inflicted on you. Forgiveness is about you beginning to find a way that you can find happiness and contentment. After that, you can deal with the issue of justice if you so wish. In my case, and at, I emphasize in my case, I forgive Charles unconditionally. I don't want him to spend a day in jail. I don't want him to be hurt in any way. I think every situation has its own sort of basis or background or story to tell. So for me, my thinking is, you know, in unusual circumstances, sometimes unusual things happen. And there's no doubt about it, Northern Ireland was an unusual place to be in the 70s. For me, for a policeman, for young men, for young women, and for soldiers. And sometimes when you have these unusual things, as I said, unusual things happen. Sometimes normal values kind of go out the window, even though it's wrong. And, you know, I think we're all lucky if we get through our life without doing things that we love to regret for the rest of our lives. And I think that Charles done something that he regretted for the rest of his life. And I would like to think that if I did something 
that the person could find it within their heart to forgive me. And I reckon there's young men and women all over Northern Ireland that because of the conditions that existed there, and I mean on all sides of the political spectrum, that have done things that in a normal society they wouldn't have done. Am I justifying it? No, I'm not. What I'm saying is that you also have got to deal with the conditions that create the circumstances to allow things to happen. What made Charles think it was alright to fire a rubber bullet at a group of children? He come from a society that at that time would have supported what he did no matter what he did. That society has got to be questioned. You can see it today. There's violence all over the world. There are elements of society that justify and support what is happening in other parts of the world. And I honestly believe the minute you begin to support violence, the minute you begin to justify violence, the minute you begin to say, yes, but these circumstances are different, then I think we're on the wrong path. But I suppose that's a process that I've gone through in my head in many occasions. And, you know, and I know it's there to be questioned and it's a debate and it's a subject matter that people can get their teeth into in many ways. You know, I'm not saying it's entirely right, but it's how I feel. And, you know, there's no question about it, Charles took away my eyesight. I have to live with that for the rest of my life. But I don't think Charles is a bad person. I don't think he got up that morning to blind a 10-year-old boy. I think that sometimes good people do bad things. I think sometimes people make a decision that is dreadfully wrong and they don't have the time or the space or the know-how at that point in time to make a decision or to think about it. And in my case, I think Charles is a good person. But he comes from a completely different background from me. He was a captain, retired a major in the army. He was a captain when he shot me. His father was in the army or the Air Force. His grandfather. I think one of the times I was talking to Charles, Charles's son, and he said to me that he, you know, Charles's son, was the first person in their family to have not been in the Muldry in 600 years. So I think completely different from me. And I have to accept that. And the thing about reconciliation and the thing about if you really are genuine about trying to reconcile, then you've got to take people from where they're at. 
and that's what I done with Charles and I'm a lot happier for it I really am Finally Richard if anybody wants to find out more about children in Crossfire or even more about you how could they do it? Well um, if you just go on the Children in Crossfire website which is childrenincrossfire.org and on there you'll see all the work that Children in Crossfire is doing you can also there's an email link there that um, you can send an email if it's for me it'll come to me I, I get the email if it's meant for me and uh, or you know there's I think there's a page on the website about Richard Moore as well I think there is I've never looked at it <laughs> I'm not going to I'm not going to admit to it anyway I look at it every day tell the truth but, no, but uh, so I think there is a page or something there if you want to find out more but um, uh, and uh, you know I'm always happy to chat or listen to people so I'm not I'm very accessible I think so um, you know they could also ring the children in Crossfire office and and Derry which is you know um, you know what is it plus four four two eight seven one two six nine eight nine eight but I sincerely hope that anybody that listens and wants to know more about the organization also is willing to support us because we need as much support as we can get great Richard look it's been a pleasure talking to you and I really enjoyed it thank you Michal I enjoyed it too Thanks for listening to another show of The Health Zone. Tune in next week for more exciting and interesting topics and guests in the areas of spirituality, relationships, finance, creativity, health, career and much, much more. In the meantime, check out and like our Facebook page on www.facebook.com forward slash The Health Zone Show or follow us on Twitter on the letter D Health Zone or log on to our website www.thehealthzoneshow.com If you subscribe to our mailing list on there, you will get The Health Zone Show delivered to your inbox every week and also you'll get a copy of our free book called How to Transform Your Health in 2016. Also, if you have any feedback on the show or if you would like to get in touch with us, our email is tunein at thehealthzoneshow.com Well, until next week, have a fantastic, healthy and happy week.